look at the front page of a newspaper. That isn't what's happening in the world, that's what somebody else has decided to show you. Greetings, hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present. We are the podcast that uses the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I am your co-host, Laura Good. And I'm the other co-host, Adrian Dobb. Can you explain to me briefly what you think is going on right now? Oh, I mean, I, I don't know, but I feel like I, <laughs> I know a little more than I did before we started this series of conversation. That's all I can ask. Yeah, That's all yeah. I can ask. Take me away. Yeah, so this is, today is the second half of my conversation with Michael Hobbs. We released the first part of that last week. And basically, for those who did not sit through Laura and my 20-minute intro to that episode... Oh, it was like 40 yeah, minutes, yeah. but yeah. Well, we cut it down. We cut it down. Uh, discipline. Megan cut it down. Um, thank yeah, you, Megan Calthus. Thank you, Megan Calthus. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at TLDR is, I got really interested in this question of how the cancel culture panic, which is something I'm I'm researching right now, sometimes is explicitly an anti-trans panic and at other times is not. And the anti-trans part of it, the transphobic part of it, kind of gets yada yada or gets kind of like recedes into the background um, and it becomes much more about like mm -hmm. what's sayable, you know, about censoriousness and about college students, et cetera, et cetera. But it always sort of seems to, like some nambulist, find its way back to the fact that there are people who are uncomfortable with trans people and are really, really invested in their ability to say that out loud again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And so so Michael, who has thought a lot about cancer culture, has thought a lot about moral panics, and who had been kind of pointing out the fact that it's really kind of taking another turn in a really kind of not good direction, uh, seemed like the perfect interlocutor to kind of open our series. But as again, listeners who sat through our 20-minute intro last time know, this is the beginning of a longer series, and we're going to be releasing these essentially weekly. This is us. This is the feminist present trying to figure out what the fuck is going on right now. Right now? Yeah, right now. And we're going to, we don't know yet, but we hope to know more about what's going on right now by the <laughs> end of it. Um, well, which I guess would be then. So the new right now, you can be along with this with us on this journey, or you can eventually decide that you've heard enough about this topic and that's fine too. But we don't know. Like it's not a six-part series, not a seven-part series, not a four-part series. We don't know. It's as many. What are you promising? I thought it would be really funny if we just played an elaborate prank on our listeners and they like only listen to us interview Michael Hobbs for like every episode right. going forward ad infinitum. Yeah, like in twenty twenty five. It's yeah, Michael exactly. again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so basically, we're going to stick with this topic for a little while, basically until we, we feel like we have some clarity on this. Um, we're kind of arranging these conversations, and you can tell from references that Michael makes in our conversation, this was recorded about two weeks ago, early August 2022. But we're basically still talking to people, we're still recording. So if you're hearing this kind of close to release date, that is to say, you know, late August 2022, feel free to send us an email and say, you know, I've wondered the same thing. Here's someone who really shed a lot of light on this for me. Or here's someone I'd love to hear from. Or here's someone who I think might know some answers. And and we'd be thrilled. If you're hearing this in like 2023... We may or may not be thrilled. 
we'll be done by then. Um, we'll hopefully be done by then, by then with the series. Plus, you know, we'll all have uh, mega drugs to contend with at that point. So like, oh, I've been hearing about some really good. Oh, mega drug. Did you say mega drugs or mega bugs? Dr- droughts. Droughts. Oh, okay, I was like mega drugs. I've been hearing great things. I hope that's what we're doing by then. No, no, we'll be um, the planet will be even more on fire. And I'm like, why are you listening to a podcast? Do you just just run? Just keep running. I mean, and if we're that hot. We might as well be high at that point, I think. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, really, really keeping us to the important topics. You know, I wanted to say a few words about how listeners can get in touch with us because yes. I feel like we frequently exhort them to tell us things and <laughs> sometimes don't always follow through on how. So easiest way is the Twitter. I am at Laura Good. That's good with an E. He is at Adrian Daub. Our names are really publicly available because we work for a really big university. So like you really wouldn't yeah. have to work that hard to find our email addresses at said large university either but anyway we love like a twitter discourse a twist course if you will so like if you want to come at us with a guest suggestion or elaborate on one of our topics or tell us something we missed like we are game the whole cancel culture discussion i was thinking about how i felt about this this week and i feel like the cancel culture discussion somehow burns at both ends without ever achieving anything in the middle which is to say I don't believe in canceling anybody. Like, I don't really believe that, like, social ostracization is, like, an effective way to get people to change behavior. That's something we can debate in any number of ways. But what I observe happening is people who have gone through being so-called canceled, like Louis C.K. is a handy example, who continue to be very employed and very visible and very popular. And I don't see maybe, like, they have experienced some discomfort in some ways. But I don't see actual consequences approaching them to nearly the same degree as, like, the discussion around those consequences. Then on the other hand, we have, and I'm trying not to be too shadow boxy about this, an audience of people who are very, very angry about what they perceive as cancellations. <laughs> And so little grist for that. Like, I guess what I'm saying is there's so much discourse about how bad cancellation is and so few actual consequences. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to string together there? Like, this is what I've been reckoning. One of the things I've been reckoning with. Yeah. And one of the paradoxes, of course, is that cancel anecdotes are not distributed equally. Right. You don't hear. Yeah. I think Michael brought the example of like, you don't hear about canceled waitresses. Right. Like it's it's Mm -hmm. in media. That's it's a very good point. In, it's yeah. in the academy, et cetera, et cetera, which are all places where indeed people's job security has declined tremendously over the last 20, 30 years. Yes, and is reliant on visibility and cloud. Exactly. But here's the thing. Within those fields, reliably, claims of cancellation attached to the least vulnerable yes. people in that group, right? So it's always like this this massively important comedian, this massively uh, well-regarded journalist, this massively mm-hmm. tenured professor, right? We never hear the story about, you know, the adjunct who wasn't asked back, right? Exactly. Like, which, which really gets damn close to what, what they describe as cancel culture, but isn't quite that because they're interested in the privilege being taken down a peg mm-hmm. in a way that they feel is unjust, right? And so there's this very interesting way in which it, it feels like this kind of concave mirror of reality, right? Where like part of your worry that we're forced to express ourselves in more and more public ways mm-hmm. in professions where we didn't used to, and that sometimes the consequences of that can be swift and brutal, you know, that's there. 
But the thing is, in the cancel culture panic, it tends to attach to the people who, frankly, are pretty immune to being, mm -hmm. you know, who are going to be fine no matter what. And it's not about the people who are most vulnerable. I should say the other thing is, of course, that it's always like censorious leftist woke college students in these stories when in fact people get mad online when they shouldn't oh yeah about all kinds of things from all kinds of political directions right so you know a good example of that i've become fascinated with is you remember these kind of weird incidents where cops claim to have had someone write like something anti-cop on their starbucks cup have you ever come across oh, one of these? Oh, I do remember those. Yes. There was yes. a rash of these. And these people always get fired. Sometimes they get rehired. They're like fake vandalism thing. things. I remember it because I'm from Minneapolis, right? So like I was hearing about this sort of how like obviously fake anti-cop graffiti yeah, yeah. appearing on someone's garage door. Yeah, and like exactly. yeah, trying to frame them basically. Yes. And so there are people and there are people losing their jobs over but of course, like, that's not the case that's going to get everyone up in arms because this person works at, at Starbucks, right? Like, it's not it's not Louis C.K. It's not a Princeton professor. It's not, you know. Mm -hmm. So the way power works in these anecdotes versus the way we know it's actually distributed in society, that's a really interesting aspect of it. And, and Michael that's so uh, interesting. and I get into, into that quite a bit in the second half of the conversation. Again, you'll notice that the anti-trans panic parts of this conversation sort of weave in and out. Next Next week, I can promise listeners will take this question head on. This was sort of the... It was like the gateway, the gateway debate. The knuckle cracking we needed to get through to, to really get into the, get into things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope nevertheless that you learn something and you enjoy my conversation uh, with Michael Hobbs. Enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we hope you'll tune in again soon. among people for these stories is totally fascinating to me because me and you have both read a million of these. We've parsed a million of these and my God, I get real bored of it. Some of them I just see and I'm like, I know, I know. this is going to check out, but I don't have time and I don't care. Like, yeah. why are we still doing this? But people still want to read them. You and I have texted about like, I'm like, I know there's something fishy. Yeah, yeah. It has the structure of something fishy, I but I can't figure out the fishiness. <laughs> I, don't know if, I, don't, I don't have the language or I don't have the time or whatever. In my book, I kind of come down on the side of like, what the cancel culture panic above all is about is subscription models, right? Like it's, we are all subscribed to them. Either, I think that a lot of people yeah. just don't read them, right? They're like, uh, like they're even probably like consumers who like ultimately might read one of these and be like, oh, this seems reasonable. Like they're going to not read the third, right? They're like, oh, this is, but then there's the person who subscribes to Barry Weiss's newsletter, right? Like it's either yeah. you want it, you want your fix every week. Or you you just don't give a shit, right? Like, and and I think that is new. That and I think that there the gatekeeping yeah. around political correctness was different because of course political correctness also was sort of everywhere, right? I mean, like John Wilson in his great book does like a Lexis Nexus search and shows like it like went up from like five to like six thousand, yeah, 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 five total in 1988 to like six thousand stories I mentioned yeah. political correctness. But at the same time, of course, as you say, like there was swimming like in the mainstream and like now. Right. Like a lot of the stuff's on the opinion pages, which I feel like not everyone reads. Right. Like there's actually very few sort of cancer culture stories 
in the kind of legacy, the US or the arts sections of the New York Times, like it's largely on the opinion pages, right? Which I feel like a lot of people just kind of flip through on their way to like, ooh, cars, mm. you know, <laughs> or like real estate, you know, <laughs> things they really care about, you know? Um, <laughs> so there is this kind of like, it finds its readers and like there is a certain part of the population that's just like fucking loves these things and needs more and more and more. And then there's the other part that's just like, oh, I didn't even realize I was in there. I didn't, I didn't even look at it. Yeah. Although I also think, I mean, there has been a drip drip of these things. Yeah. And what worries me is the prominence. You know, there was a cover story in The Economist of like the don't underestimate the left wing threat. I believe it was a cover. Maybe it was just a, a, a massive feature. Huge. But in The Atlantic, there was this thing called the New Puritans and about like leftists on Twitter, which is fucking wild the same year that we get the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? And like Obergefell and Lawrence and all these other things possibly getting overturned. The idea that like leftists on Twitter are the, the New Puritans is, is darkly hilarious. Yeah. But it's like, again, it's like it's it's the prominence and the importance, like this weird faux seriousness that you that you and I have both seen in these things of these like gravely intoning about the editor that was fired for like groping, a, <laughs> groping a employee. And it's like, oh, no one is safe at the workplace. And you're like, really? No groper <laughs> is safe. At the <laughs> But it's like that that worries me because the right wing trends are very bad in this country. Right. And the the sort of the outbreak of stochastic violence right. that we've seen really in the last month. Right. With these like white supremacist shootings and the sort of escalating death threats against local public health officials, local politicians. Right. This has never been collected together into a cover right. story of like we now live in a country where like right wing interpersonal violence is now an actual, like a real force right. in this country. That has not really been collected. And yet the quote unquote threat of people being mean on Twitter or like canceling Frida Kahlo, it's like a major cover story in one of like the big establishment papers, basically once a month, like one of them will do a thing. And zooming out, it's like if you're somebody who doesn't follow the news all that much, which is everybody, you're like, man, there right. must really be something to this leftist threat because I keep seeing prominent stories about it. The other thing, and I think this is maybe more true in Europe than in the United States, because I think that in the United States, you're right, it's like it appears structurally different. Like it's these big cover stories. I forget the Anne Applebaum, the new Puritans that you mentioned is like incredibly long. I couldn't believe just how much of that. It's like 12,000 words. Yeah, it's, some, yeah, it's, it's insane. Wild. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that, as you say, that, that, that sends its own message, right. To say like, we are giving all over like a third of our magazine to this, you know, like there's more cancel culture than ads in this fucking thing at this point. <laughs> That's not how it works in Europe. I feel like there, there it's usually these like shorter, usually in daily newspapers. And what's interesting about that is like, it teaches people to accept shitty short articles. Like there's one article I looked at <laughs> that was really funny, ostensibly about wokeism or about cancel culture. So the first four paragraphs are basically about the terror during the French Revolution and about Robespierre. Then we get to the Chinese Cultural Revolution for like three paragraphs. Then there's like one thing about like today's wokesters may not chop up your head, but they will murder you symbolically. Love like it. Then we're back with the Chinese Cultural Revolution for some reason. Then you get like, I think like Orwell for two paragraphs, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is an example <laughs> finally. And this is like in maybe paragraph 20 of like tw out of 24. Sure. And it is that the Jane Austen Museum has put a plaque somewhere explaining Jane Austen's relationship to colonialism. <laughs> and then we're back with Robespierre, just, for, just as a closer. And it's like, as a literature professor, I'm just like, 
I worry about the pedagogy contained in this yeah, article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you can believe about cancel culture, whatever the fuck you want, but you should know that this is garbage. Like, that is right. a... What 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 kind of essay is this? They're like if like the ostensible subject of this essay comes up twice in like and it's a whole page. It's a whole page. Of I love I love that you're like Cohen pilled on this, just like me, because it like it makes you so bananas reading these things because like the the quality of the thought is like so bad like what i'm yeah. always fascinated by is the sort of the pantomime of intelligence right. right there's like the robespierre quoting there's the the reference to historical events yeah. there's oftentimes like a plato or an aristotle quote it's all the sort of the things that smart people right. do but then it's in service of the dumbest fucking thing <laughs> you've ever read where it's like isn't this completely nothing burger of a story just like genocide right it's like no it straightforwardly is yeah. not just like genocide like it's not and yet you've dressed it up and you put all this padding around it in this like this again this symbolic metaphorical significance right of why the fuck should i care about a museum that i've never heard of right putting up a plaque right there's no reason this should be on my radar at all but the reason that i care is because it's a, it's a symbolic attack yeah on me, it's a symbolic attack on like the the people that I revere are being torn down by these woke scolds and blah 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 blah, and it's like the only way to get mad about these things because they're always so low stakes. It's incredible the the stakes of these fucking stories. The only way to care about them is if they are purely metaphor, and that's like that's why they need all of the padding. Right. But it's not it's not a smart way to talk about events happening it's not it's not intelligent at all it just has the appearance of intelligence right and of course i think in the current moment we can also look back at about 30 years of another kind of low-grade moral panic which is like the classics are not being taught anymore right so the classics become kind of oh, like love that one the I know. automatic allies in your quest against quote-unquote wokeness right like in your fight against wokeness like you're basically you're like plato's on my side and hegel's on my side and kant is on my side I say this as someone who, you know, teaches gender studies and so constantly gets like questions about this stuff. But I also teach Kant and Hegel, right? So like people are like, well, would your students <laughs> ever accept? It's like, yes, they do. And in fact, that's I, I teach a seminar called Hegel. So like, yeah. yeah, like there is like literally just a cis dude in the course. Students are fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like they know what they're getting when they're signing up for it. They're fine. But like, it is this kind of like, you get to feel intelligent for having absorbed this. But like, in essence, you've been sold, as you say, like some of the laziest thinking, some of the laziest comparisons yeah. imaginable. And that's the part that really does worry me. I do think you brought up like, you know, the, the way panic around trans people sort of requires us to discard like, the most common sense notion of how power works, right? Yeah. If none of your elected officials are trans, like, they're not that powerful. Like, that's just like, you know, right. it should be pretty clear that people in society who appear to hold money and power, in fact, hold money and power. Right. People who habitually hold very little of it, such as college students, probably aren't that powerful. Right. right? But you're being invited to discard them. Be like, oh, isn't there a different analysis of society where up is down? And left is right. And this has been at the heart of the political correctness panic, I would say, really since the 80s right. to say, oh, college professors are super powerful was always darkly hilarious. But then again, at least we're comfortably yeah. off, right? Or were in the 80s, yeah, yeah, not yeah, anymore. Yeah. Now we're yeah. mostly impoverished, but whatever. But the trans panic feels to the extreme, feels pushing that to the extreme, right? People who yeah. very, very, very manifestly don't hold a lot of power within society 
if you can accept them as secretly being in control of the discourse, right. like you will accept fucking anything, right? Right. Well, this is. I, I've been thinking a lot lately about like the power of anecdotes and the use of anecdotes in journalism. We just had this big blow up about the ten-year-old girl in Ohio and like what that anecdote means for you know right. abortion rights. And I always go back to the frivolous lawsuits panic in America. Right. It's a very long-running and very one, yeah. extremely effective moral panic. And you know, based on essentially this anecdote, this false anecdote about this woman who burned herself with coffee at McDonald's, people believed, actually believed that it was too easy to sue corporations in the United States. Right. Like it's something that if you think about it for two seconds, like <laughs> do you feel empowered to sue a company and get millions of dollars with no accountability? Really? Really? Right. But the power of these anecdotes, these stories that really catch fire, it can convince you that even when these stories are true, right, even if the McDonald's anecdote was 100% true, like the version of it, of it that you heard, it doesn't indicate a trend, right? What we need to look at is the numbers. And this is what's always so amazing about moral panics to me is that even when the numbers are available, a story can just make you ignore right. the numbers, right? People completely turn off their critical faculties and again, with the nationalization of media, the internationalization of media, there's going to be anecdotes that demonstrate anything, right? You can find an anecdote of a trans person being really, really annoying. And you can find an anecdote of a trans person being, like, murdered, right? You, could, you can find the entire spectrum of experiences. You can find an anecdote that, that fulfills that purpose, right? Right. So what we need is we need, like, a much more sophisticated understanding, especially among journalists, but also among readers, of, like, how is this anecdote being used? And basically, is the underlying trend something that is worthy of national concern, right? Because there's anecdotes, there's stories, and then there's actual trends. And what we've seen, especially with this moral panic idea, but also, you know, political correctness and everything else, is the use of anecdotes to indicate that there's this huge iceberg of a problem underneath them, when actually there's just the anecdotes. Right. Like the anecdotes, there's nothing underneath. And I think, I mean, I think the canonical example of this is the stranger danger panic, where there's these real, very real stories of kids being killed, kidnapped and killed. Yeah, horrible stories. Yeah. And it makes it seem, you know, if, if we hear about 50 of them a year, that probably means there's 500,000 because there's so many that we're not hearing about. And then people look into the numbers. And if there's 50 that you're hearing about, there's about 100. Right. Because every single time a kid gets kidnapped and killed, it's a huge news story. It's something that by definition is really rare. And so it is in the newspapers every time. And I think... What we've seen with the cancel culture panic is the total refusal of people to accept that. That like, yeah, okay, I mean some of these – the vast majority of these anecdotes do not check out. But there are a couple of them where it's like, yeah, like, okay, someone got suspended for like something that was dumb and like – People should be ashamed of themselves. You know, students filed a really dumb complaint and then it went too far and then the, the teacher got fired or whatever. Like there's a couple of these, right? Yeah. But it really does feel like – Every time that happens, it's a national story. Like, I, I really don't think that it's hiding all of these other stories underneath because then if it was, people wouldn't have to lie to make right, it seem point. real. And the, the amount of lying and the amount of inflated anecdotes, I think, is a sign that, like, the anecdotes aren't there. And we know the numbers aren't there because the numbers that are being produced by these people are, like, hilariously small. So it seems like people really struggle with the concept that, like, this story is true but the trend that it illustrates is not true. That's something that really, really turns people's brains off. I agree with you that people have difficulty, but I think the difficulty has also been constructed over time, right? Yeah, It's yeah. not an accident that a lot of these anecdotes are set on campuses, a place where most of us 
after we graduate, visit in fictive forms, right? We like right. watch movies, we watch TV shows about like aging professors, we read novels about aging professors, that kind of thing. Like this is a space where we are used to being told stories and imbuing them with meaning and not asking how representative they are, right? You never read a novel and you think, how representative is this? Right. But that's a real problem when someone then tells you a campus novel, but it's like, oh, but this is actually true and it's a political point, right? It's like, oh shit, like right. you got to turn your bullshit detector back on, right? If you want to read Philip Roth, you can turn it off. That's fine. It's a novel. Right. But like, it sucks when that has gotten rusty over like 50 years of like these kinds of college stories. And then there is this other, you've alluded to it many times now, like this other infrastructure that really is meant to A, produce these anecdotes and B, then remediate them. Yeah. And that started in the 60s with a bunch of things, outfits like the Olin Foundation started and like... Bill Buckley started and then David Horowitz sort of got in on it in the 80s, right? Like Heritage got into it, right? Like, and now it's sort of Campus Watch and that kind of thing and whatever that Charlie Kirk thing is. OTP USA. Yeah, and Ben Shapiro. It's not an accident, as you've pointed out before, that like people believe this. It's like that the industry has pushed these things, right? Yeah. And I think people are unprepared for that as well to sort of understand that like what's in their newspaper is in some way a reflection of power. Someone got to tell that story because they hold some power over the media. Like, I, I know that sounds a little conspiratorial, but like you have to be dressed up in a certain way to get someone to care about what at first feels like a tiny story. And, you know, these organizations have a lot of financial muscle behind them to make that work in a way that like a bunch of Berkeley undergrads who sound like Judith Butler every time they open their mouths, like are just not going to have. Yeah. They're not press savvy. They might have other things going on. They might not be interested in talking to a reporter, right? Like, whereas like the person who like has been doing nothing but this for 10 years, like, of course, knows how to put together a package that like some editor somewhere is going to fall for. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, when I was living in Seattle, I did a lot of work on sex workers and I was really lucky to know a lot of people involved in the sex work community in Seattle. And it took a really long time for those people to trust me because journalists have been so bad on the issue of sex work over right. the years, right? And there's been a lot of broken promises. And so this is a community that like, if something really horrible happens to a sex worker, oftentimes that community doesn't have reporters that they can call up because reporters, what they value is access to power, right? So they have access yeah. to magazine editors and politicians and heads of philanthropies, et cetera. And then when it comes to people like sex workers who are really on the ground of all these moral panics, it's always marginalized populations that get this stuff first. Reporters don't necessarily have those contacts and you need to do things to gain access to those communities, just like you right. need to do things to gain access to politicians that make them know that they can trust you. And there's like certain codes of behavior and a lot of a lot of journalists just aren't plugged into those communities. And this is something that right. has always made me really sad of like how easy it is to get access to people with power, right? You start getting invited to like off the record. Like I got invited to some off the record event once with like senators. This is like what happens once you start getting on like people in power on their radar. A guy from Uber took me to lunch once. Like you just start getting contacted by people who are yeah. like high level and like they want to know you and they do research on your background. And like, it's all very transactional, but with the communities that you actually really should be listening to, there's no similar infrastructure because those people are busy, they have less money, kind of by definition, those people are not courting you in the same way. But in the same way, you you miss out on a lot of stories because those people can't just pick up the phone and tell you like, yeah, something really messed up happened to me, like a really big injustice just happened to me. And I trust you as a journalist to do this correctly. That's not a model, like there are journalists that do this, of course, but like 
so many of the journalists that we have on this kind of weird moral panic beat, even the ones that identify as progressives, it's like the person on the other end of the phone is like a white guy who got yelled at by some students. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the narrator of the story. And then I love seeing the structure of these stories where it'll say like, you know, the professor said he was fired, whatever. And then in parentheses, it will be like, you know, the school would not respond to terms for contact, right? And it's like, ah, okay. So you talk to this guy at the end, like as an afterthought, you contacted other people, but it's like, he's the protagonist of the story and you're checking things at the margins. Right. And like, that's always very obvious, like what perspective these stories are coming from. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that often enough, the accusers are not either not contacted at all or very common things also that the supposed cancel victim will say, I don't even know who it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though they're obviously like usually aware you know, there was that case at Harvard, right, where, like, they exploit the fact that, like, a lot of institutions sort of won't sort of easily respond, try to stay out of these things. So it, it's true. It, it does become this kind of, like, monovocal thing. It becomes just, like, you discover that, like, the source for a story about this person was one person, namely that person themselves. And, like, sometimes that can be okay, yeah. but, like, it's risky territory, right? Like, that's pretty damn close to journalistic malpractice. I hate how broken my brain is, because when you said there's that case at Harvard, like, four different cases, like, <laughs> ran through my mind. Oh, sorry. Um, I was thinking of Komarov, <laughs> yeah. Um, right, where, like, where it, it was very clear that, like, a lot of the reporting had just been dominated by his attorneys. Yeah. Like, as attorneys do, like, yeah, obviously yeah. presented facts in a way that was most favorable to their client. It's like, like, I don't... It's their job. Fault the yeah. attorneys. Yeah. It's their job. It's like, who the fuck transcribed this and called it fact? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like no, this person said they didn't do it. So I yeah. uh, guess we're done here, right? Like, it's like... There was a really good one in Reason about a student who had been expelled for his conservative views, of course. And the story had two sources, or what looked like two sources. It was the student who had been expelled, and then there was a series of legal filings. Like, a, a, a judge had ruled in the case. But the judge's ruling was based exclusively on his own legal filings. So when you're reading the story, it's like, according to legal filings, da, 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 which makes it seem like, oh, it's credible. Like, there are legal filings. Like, there's a legal finding in this case. But the legal finding was based exclusively on his own accounting of events. Right. So it's like it has this air of fact to it, but yeah, it's literally yeah. one person's account, just two versions of one person's account. And that, that's the other thing that I think ties all these things together, which is that in some ways... This isn't actually about institutions being out of control. It's about institutions being leery and putting their foot down and saying, that's not what happened, right? Right. In some way, these are not stories of institutional overreach. Often enough, they're stories about institutions not being willing to comment on how they made determinations, right? And, and you can criticize that, but it's a different problem. I actually wonder if we'll see a change too, because social media makes it so easy to say, I was fired because of X. Especially if you're a professor or somebody with a platform, it's really easy to go out there and get a lot of good press for doing that. And then in general, employers don't comment on like employment things for various reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. But then what that creates in the media is a one-sided account. Exactly. But then there's been a couple times where employers will say, oh, we actually did an internal review. Here's the internal review. Right. And <laughs> in 99 cases out of 100, these people are always lying like, oh, I got fired over like a misunderstanding. And then it was not a misunderstanding, right? Like almost always, right? And so I do wonder if in like the sort of post-cancellation, post-social media age, employers will just be like, this dude's a dick. Here's here's the documentation. Like, <laughs> If you want to do this in public, we can do this in public. Yeah. Because part of it is just structurally speaking, 
like organizations can't really speak about why somebody was let go. Right. And it takes an incredible amount of chutzpah for a lot of these people to like go out in public and tell this like sad canceled story. Right. When like they know in like there was a guy a couple years ago who had four complaints of sexual harassment and he pretended that he had been let go for some like, I made a joke. And then like the, the woke scolds overreacted. Right. Like he knew what the, (laughs) he knew what the deal was. He just thought that the school wouldn't actually release the real reason why he had been fired. Finding it really interesting, right? At the beginning of the political correctness moral panic, there was that book by Charlie Sykes, Prof Scam. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Which sort of is a really weird book to read as an academic because on the one hand, his diagnosis of like how a professor are destroying higher education seems deranged. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the problems he identifies in academia are real, mm. right? So like every other page, you're like, well, this is a true thing that he says. And this is a real problem. And, I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. and here's how leftist professors are causing it. You're like, what? You know, um, yeah. and like, you know, I mean, like, I wish we were that powerful, but geez, you know, and it strikes me that the same thing has really been true for 40 years. We talk a lot about the cancel part of cancel culture. We don't talk about the culture part that much. Mm-hmm. It's It's been a way of avoiding talking about economics for 40 years. There were real problems of disinvestment and growing inequality that were happening at college campuses in the 80s. And of course, the political correctness moral panic sort of was on the surface of that, right? That was sort of whelming underneath with something like like Justine Sacco, right? Who's like, we didn't have the word cancer culture yet, but she's a pretty clear example of this, right? Like yeah. one terrible tweet, gets on an airplane, gets off the airplane, is fired, yeah. right? Um, kind of like pretty classic case, it all happened on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing is the cancel culture critique says, why are people so censorious? right? About one joke. What they don't say is like, why was it so easy to fire this woman? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the question we never ask. Like, should people be harder to fire? Yeah. I think that yeah. might be true. Maybe not necessarily sexual harassers, but like, it does strike me as like, there's a bunch of conversations about flexibilization, casualization of labor that we're not having. We're having the, the culture argument. Right. Right. A friend of mine, this was pre-internet. A friend of mine was working at a fast food place when he was a teenager and one of the customers told his manager that he was acting too faggy and his manager oh. was like, Hey, you're, uh, you're acting too faggy. You're fired. Like that, that was legal. I mean, I, it's still legal in numerous States now, but it was like someone complained basically that's a homosexual serving chicken and he got fired. And that is essentially the same structure as like a lot of these Twitter yeah. things like these, these Twitter cancellations where oftentimes There isn't even like a Twitter mob. Oftentimes it's like a couple people contact somebody's employer, maybe one or two people and say, hey, you should fire this guy because he sucks. And then the institutions, these institutions don't really know what they're doing and they kind of jump the gun a little bit and they're like, ah, and then they fire somebody too quickly. But nobody, nobody would look at that story of my friend being fired from the fast food place and go like, oh, there's like a Twitter mob problem. It's like, no, his manager (laughs) obviously should not have fired him for that and should have told the customer to go take a hike, right? But it's the same sort of thing here where I feel like we're in this transition period where because of social media, like I I feel like social change and the rhetoric around social change and social progress is just moving a lot more quickly than it used to. 
And a lot of people are, especially after George Floyd and after the pandemic, people are kind of trying to maintain their self-image as a progressive person, and we all want to do the right thing. But oftentimes, it's hard to know what the right thing is, right? It's hard to know, like, right. what is the vocabulary that I should use? And, like, this person says I should say this, and this other person says I shouldn't. A lot of these fights, it feels like, are based on clumsy attempts to do the right thing. There's this infamous tweet. I don't know if it's by the ACLU, but they took a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote where she was saying like something about like women in society, it's harder for women something. And they replaced all of the the women with people in brackets. So like for people in the world, for people, it's and it ended up just really clunky and basically just like unreadable because she said women so many times in this quote that replacing it with people and the brackets are make it hard to read and whatever else. And of course, the right wing sees this and of course freaks out. They're like, oh, they're giving into wokeness and like tyranny, all these same arguments we've heard a million times. And most like most of the trans people that I've talked to about this have been like, it was clunky. Like no one really asked them to do that, but they were like, they were trying. Yeah. Right. And it didn't, it didn't really work out in that case, but like, who cares? It's a tweet. Right. And like, I don't think that's going to be the model for like historical quotes going forward. It's like they tried. Right. And I think that to me is like a metaphor for sort of the moment that we're in. People are getting used to social media. People are getting used to social media mobs. Like, what do you do when a bunch of people are yelling at one of your employees on the internet? Right. I think in the early days of these things, in this Justine Sacco days, I think employers were just like, ah, like, let's kill it. But then I think we're, we're getting to this point now where there's more of an understanding that like these things blow over. Right. And that, like, if they had not fired Justine Sacco, nobody would have remembered her. Like, a week later, people were done talking about that, right? They could have easily just ignored it. It would have blown over. They would have been yelling about the next thing the next week. I think we're, like, we're coming to a set of norms about this. But what bugs me about all this moral panic stuff that's been going on the last couple of years is that, like, most of this is just, like, clumsy attempts to do the right thing. Right. A lot of this stuff, like a lot of the diversity and equity, like there's always these like slides that go around that are like kind of right. embarrassing. And like some of the Robin D'Angelo stuff is like pretty cringe, but it's like people are trying, you know, <laughs> and like trying to do the right thing and failing is not tyranny. And it's not like the amount of sort of butthurt conservatism that has grown up around these things of like we're trying, we're not always getting it right we're overreacting to some things. We're underreacting to other things. We're just in this kind of transitional moment. And I don't want to excuse every single thing that's gone on, but it just feels like a lot of people are just kind of feeling their way forward at a time when the social norms around a lot of things are changing very quickly. And so I really find it difficult to see that as a threat, right? It's like... Yeah. And I mean, I would say that the cancel culture panic and the panic around trans people in the same way are actively unhelpful in that moment, right? Like, if conservatives said, well, we need to settle on some norms here, what are the norms, right? How do we de-escalate some of that stuff? Right. I would even say, like, that those are good questions to ask. I'm sure we're yeah. differ we'll differ on the answers, but, like, it's a good question to ask. But that's not what that does. The cancel culture panic responds to what it sees as a rhetorical escalation on the left by escalating the fuck out of that escalation, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's yeah. Like, Gee, so you thought that, oh, this pot's boiling over. What if we add more heat, right? Like, that's not your answer. I'm sorry. Even if you were correct in your assessment of the problem, the very remedy you found for it, we're never told what we're actually supposed to do about it. Same with PC, right? Like, Ronald Reagan was still pretty open about what he wanted to do about campus leftists, right? right. Slash funds, send in the police, right. right? Dinesh D'Souza no longer said that. He always left open. Go, like, oh, I'm just asking questions, right? Like, they never say what they want to do. Yeah. What they want to do is raise awareness. And that way it is like a lot of these other moral panics, right? Like, oh, we just need to know it, right? 
how does that help? Right. right. You're just moaning about people on Twitter. You're just moaning about randos that you can't really do anything about anyway. Exactly, which is like what we all hate Twitter for. Yeah. It's like, you, I bet you didn't know this, and now you should feel bad about it. Like, oh, come on, yeah. fuck off. Yeah. You know, like, it's not good tweeting. Like, do an interesting thing yeah. that, like, we can learn something from, right? Like, don't, yeah. don't make anyone feel guilty. All right? Yeah. But, like, you take the worst of that, and you then add your own worseness, and then you're like, well, problem solved, right? Like, no, you're, this isn't meant to solve that problem. I think you're exactly right that... In the end, we'll look back at this and say, like, look, there were norms there waiting to be established and we can sort of see the outlines of them and they haven't yet taken root. But the cancer culture panic is trying no such thing. It in some way makes it harder. It pathologizes the attempt to establish norms. I mean, one thing that I found in trying to understand where the word cancel culture actually came from is that it was clearly used as a kind of corrective term in online spaces on Tumblr and Twitter. It was people saying, look, this is getting very cancel culture to each other to indicate this discussion is going in an unproductive direction, right? That's why no one ever identified with it because it was meant to be this thing that said like, hey, I think this discussion is getting off the rails, right? So the very panic around it in some way kind of deprives us of, of a really interesting attempt by largely uh, women of color and non-binary people in spaces like Tumblr and Twitter to sort of say like, how do we have these discussions productively, right? That's what it was. And mm. instead, like so many other things that, that start in these spaces, it got like picked up, like, like the word woke, right? And misappropriated by like white conservatives. Do you have an explanation for why all this has gotten so transphobic in the sort of the late cancel culture panic period? I don't really know. I think I, I have a couple of ideas. I'm not sure if any of them hold water and I'm, I'm desperately sort of trying to, to understand it. You know, the cynical read might be panic was always preparation for this, right? Mm. The other possibility is people got tired of the cancel culture articles. I mean, that, this is where the subscription model to me becomes important, right? Like you can only sell someone the same drug so often before they want some kind of escalation. And like, this is the next escalation. And then the other thing is you, you brought up the word reactionary centrist earlier, which I, I love, even though I still don't quite know where it's from. I just I just think it's so right. Oh, I stole it from a, an Aaron Hanlon piece from, I think, 2018 or something. Yeah. Ah, fantastic. You know, it needs a outside to react to in order to be able to sound super conservative while claiming to defend liberalism, right? Dinesh D'Souza's book was called The Liberal Education. Like that was already his shtick, right? This guy was like a dyed-in-the-wool theocratic conservative. Right. And yet people were like, oh, he's defending liberalism. It's like, that is like, you literally put the fox in charge of yeah, the head yeah. out there, my friend. We've been doing that for a while, but like, it does require kind of new grist for the mill, I feel like. And I wonder whether like transphobia sort of allows that, right? Like it once again, sort of gives us right-wing talking points that can be sort of appropriated to look liberal or in the, in the case of Germany, even look left-wing. Right. There are lefties that start sounding like this. Right. Yeah. Or self-proclaimed lefties, who knows? Yeah, there's the uh, the I'm not a liberal, but is an endless grift, even even with people like D'Souza who are not right. remotely liberal. I mean, what I'm fascinated by is I I actually think that actual grifting, actual bad faith cynicism is much more rare than we think it is. I think most of the people who are saying, really? I'm liberal, but I'm concerned about trans rights or whatever, I think they're genuine. I think a lot of these people are aging liberals. And they are people who are, you know, part of the generation that feels like, okay, they got gay rights, they fought for women's rights. The fact that a lot of the most vocal transphobes are women, I think, is 
telling. I think that there's this sense of like, well, why isn't it about me anymore? I think one of the reasons we saw so much kindling around the overturning of Roe v. Wade was kind of like, well, no, 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 this, this is about me. I'm a woman. This is about me. Right. And you're telling me that it's going to disproportionately harm black women and non-binary people and trans men. I have to include everybody else. And I can't even say pregnant women anymore. And it's like, no, this is my, this is my outrage. This is my issue. And I think, again, that sort of that fairly minor sense of aggrievement of like just kind of annoyance, like I'm annoyed at what people are saying on Twitter, right. can very easily become an entire worldview. I think that that tendency is invisible to the people who are doing it. The kind of, right. you know, I'm casting my own personal irritation or even like fairly mild irritation as like a threat to the nation, right? I have to see other people say the phrase pregnant people, right? That to me is like somewhat telling that it's like this generational thing that, you know, you're seeing like with John Rauch and Andrew Sullivan as well, this like weird gatekeeping around who gets to be yeah. gay. And like a lot of these kids, they they say they're gay, but like they won't turn out to be gay in the end. And it's like, great. I don't see why like these people will probably be allies to me if they if they go through a lot of their teenage years yeah. thinking that they're gay. And then eventually they realize that they're straight later and they, they live in a supportive home where their parents let them explore that. Like, I don't know why this like this is the future we've always wanted, man. Why would I give a yeah. shit about this? Yeah. There's just this weird gatekeeping and this weird sort of almost generational thing of like people don't know the way that it was. And they're not realizing that, of course, they have become the generation above them. They have become the generation that made it so hard for them. But nobody ever realizes that that's what's happening to them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that I think youth culture is never far from the moral panic, right? Oh, yeah. Whether it's gangs, Satanism, et cetera, et cetera. You know, young kids get up to stuff. And in this case, I think that, you know, with cancer culture, we're also looking at, as my friend Maura Weigel joked a lot of the panic is really clearly about women talking yeah yeah totally <laughs> women talking about men to each, to each other yeah. right like um that's like that's like the horror of me too and like that's a lot of like uh like why can't i be in that room is basically yeah. a big big motivator of this panic and i think that yeah that the idea that like there are interesting generative conversations to be had about gender and sexuality that may no longer include us as cis gay men mm -hmm. right like to me is absolutely obvious. Yeah. But I can see what you're saying that like for an older generation, that's there's a melancholy to that. Yeah. Right. Like that didn't. Well, I mean, it's still the case. There were like women's houses in the seventies. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, but still, but like I guess it's more obvious now. That, like the white hot center of the discourse is somewhere else now. Yeah. Right. There is a kind of discomfort with that. But right. It makes a lot of sense to me. There's also, I mean, I think there's also the sort of the laundering that's happened from journalists some of whom I think are well-meaning, some of whom are less well-meaning, who have kind of gotten worked by the right-wing reactionaries and have sort of... Right. I think there's a thing in journalism, especially in kind of features reporting, that you're supposed to take everybody at their word and you're supposed to assume that everybody's acting in good faith. And then what you end up with is, you know, there was this infamous article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about like the debate within medicine about gender transition for adolescents, right? Which was effectively the identical right. article that we've gotten now like 19 times, right? Where it's basically just asking questions like, are kids transitioning too fast? Even though the, the answers to that question are extremely readily available, there's no evidence that large numbers of children are transitioning without assessment. All of the evidence that we have indicates that kids are not being able to transition when they need to transition because there's long wait times. Right. Their insurance won't cover it. They need to get letters from doctors. Kids are spending years in these kind of assessment processes. Like, 
there is no there there, right? But there's a certain kind of like journalism brain that thinks that like what we need to cover is like the debate and like the question. We need to cover the question. And it's to me, it's like this this weird blindness of the fact that you're releasing your article into a transphobic country and a time of transphobic backlash. And so asking questions like this at this time is not responsible to me. It feels like journalistic malpractice. It feels like writing an article. This is an incendiary comparison, but like an article in like 1935 being like, well, are Jews undermining the German state? I'm not saying they are. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just asking, are they plotting against us, right? Not taking a position. You can't really do that, right? Like the the context, it's not appropriate in that context. And the journalist of that particular article, I think honestly was acting in bad faith. I don't think that she's like a secret transphobe. I don't think that she went into this with bad intentions. But I think that there's a weird blindness on the part of people who are within these institutions to just acknowledge the fact that like, yeah, you affect the world around you. And like, this is going to get vacuumed up by super bad faith actors and any little chink in the wall, they are going to cram in some sort of crowbar and a fucking sledgehammer. And of course, that's exactly what happens every single time there's one of these articles, whether they're in good faith or bad faith, you see them get taken up by transphobes and they're like, oh, look, there's, there's questions. This is what we've been saying all along. Finally, the New York Times is agreeing with us, right? You just have to be careful with this stuff and you need to make it really clear to people that like, there is no evidence that there's a there there. There's, there's anecdotes. There is nothing else here, but that's, people seem to be really reluctant to just straightforwardly communicate that. There's a kind of neutrality in a reporting that still gets assumed that really after Me Too and Black Lives Matter really over the last three or four years have really kind of taken the sledgehammer to to say like, well, no, this is gonna be part of the discourse and it's gonna influence the discussion one way or the other. And mm. you gotta live with that, right? Can you, <laughs> right? Like, you know, is, is this yeah. how you want to weigh in? there's this kind of longing for a kind of neutrality that never was, right? The, the kind of like, oh, we're, you know, right. like, yeah, we're just, we're just uh, polite people having a conversation. It's like, well, no, that's that always presumes that the person you're talking about is not in the room, right? Always assumes that the person that right. you're fulminating about, like, isn't going to be affected by what you're saying. But like, you know, of course they are. Right. And also it, it allows, I think journalists are very selective with when they acknowledge that they have power. Right. And to acknowledge the fact that, like, I'm releasing this article into a specific context and I need, you know, this this could harm people. This could really hurt people if, right. I, if I don't say the right things. I think I think that's like a scary thing to contemplate. And I think a lot of journalists like just reject it like a transplant of just like I have to actually be careful or they or they think about it as a kind of misinformation, right. which I actually think that it's it's exactly the opposite. I think the most important thing to convey to people is the basic fact that there is no, there's nothing to this moral panic. Like that is the starting point. And that a huge number of people are just lying about the fact that like kids are transitioning after they see a YouTube video and they go to one appointment and then they're on hormones the next day. That's a lie. A huge number of people are lying about this, but it seems like there's a weird reluctance to just be like, okay, there's like kind of a debate here, but one side of it is like fairly fringe and one side of it is just constantly fucking lying. And the other side of it has like a bunch of medical, like scientific literature behind them. And like their actual narrative of the facts makes sense. And the other side doesn't make any sense. Again, it's like the meta myth that like people are so bewitched 
by gender ideology that like doctors are rushing kids into no. surgery too fast. And it's like, is the American medical system like does it seem particularly woke to you? <laughs> like it this got doesn't taken over by Judith Butler. I mean, like it just doesn't it just literally doesn't make sense. But there's like yeah. this weird reluctance. Like if there is a debate, there's a bias toward assuming that both sides of the debate must have a point. Right. And it's like, no, one side is mostly lying and the other side is mostly correct. And the most important thing in a story like this and a context like this is to very clearly like front ground that <laughs> finding like there are bad people and good people in this debate. And like we are we're hurting people with this stuff. But I think that moral – I mean I also think there's like – there's this weird reluctance to apply a moral lens to journalism. I think that you know there's journalistic ethics and people have this thing of objectivity. It just seems like mean and bad to me. It just seems like you're hurting yeah. you're hurting people like as a person. It just seems strange to kind of like refuse to apply that lens to what you do for eight hours a day. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there because I think that in some way that's a perfect coda, right, to say that cancel culture panic, the political correctness panic – we're really about newspapers not really asking the question of like, what are we doing in reporting this story? Yeah. But ultimately, his victims were Harvard students, right? So it's like, okay, like, yeah, it's not a group that can like necessarily defend itself now, but like, they'll they'll be all right. Yeah. Unfortunately, these things keeps expanding, and eventually, you're gonna get to a point where the power differentials that you blinded yourself to in reporting on these events, right? The power differential is gonna get so big that you really are creating danger and creating harm. Maybe that's the point that we're at now, yeah. where basically journalists have taught themselves not to care. I mean, certain journalists and certain cultural actors have taught themselves not to care. And everybody wants to brag about impact journalism when it's time to apply for awards, right? but nobody wants to think about the inadvertent impacts of their journalism. And I think those are probably much, <laughs> much more significant. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm glad that I ranted us to an ending. <laughs> no, this is perfect. No, this is like, really great. Mike's, Mike's all worked up. <laughs> the Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.